And one of the number one bits of feedback we would get immediately is, hey, why do you have that dumb microphone? Hey, you got those big headphones on. What are you playing radio? <laughs> what is this, a radio show? And now, now if you turn on ESPN or you, you turn on um, Joe Rogan on YouTube, they have big podcast microphones and headphones, and it's just become totally commonplace. Okay, Jeff, got something a little special for you today. A little we special, have, huh? Uh, we have a guest interview. A guest, our very first guest. Welcome. Yes, our Welcome, very first very guest. First and guest. when I was, when I was thinking of who should we have on for the first, obviously there are a ton of names that come up, mm -hmm. but there was one name that I was like, you know what? I I got it. I know who I want, and that is Chris Fisher. And the reason I wanted Chris is because Chris is the guy who really got me into doing this kind of stuff. Oh, I mean, so I he's responsible around. for all this, huh? Right, yeah, oh, blame okay. him. Blame. Hashtag blame Chris. Okay, got it. Um, I had done some stupid stuff trying to do a podcast with some friends back in the early 2000s uh, around the Stargate show because I was a moderator and admin at a Stargate fan site. But it didn't really go anywhere. We did like three, four episodes. We weren't serious about it. Um, and it just kind of, it was a thing in the past. But in... I don't even remember. I think I first came aware of the Linux Action Show in a... I think it was like 2011. And I was watching for a long time, then started to get involved in the, in the IRC channel when they were doing the live shows and chatting. And then one day in 2013, Chris mentioned that he needed somebody to help him out with a few things. And I was like, hey, I'd love to. You know, I've enjoyed the show for so long. It'd be great to be able to pitch in and kind of give back and help out. And one thing led to another. And then after a while, I came on, started helping with production, scheduling uh, guest interviews, and maybe, you know, setting up scheduling for doing podcast or uh, distro reviews. And getting people from the distros again in interviews to come on and talk and was there when the idea for Linux Unplugged came up. And actually, funny thing, Chris, I was going through a hard drive the other the other day and I found an old, really crappy PNG um, back when we were talking about the Linux Unplugged logo the, of when we were all just kind of throwing ideas out there. Um, in the production channel, and uh, there was the one was with how, how the D was kind of integral into the E as like a plug, and then there was the wire. And my my version was horrible; it was absolutely horrible. But thankfully, uh, you guys were able to take that, send that, and some other designs that people had kicked to you to the uh, designer that you guys used, and then Linux Unplugged logo came out way better than I could have ever <laughs> expected. Ball rolling, huh? <laughs> I yeah, well, I was you. the I was the snowflake that started the avalanche, but oh, you know, go. everything after that was not my I didn't do. I was just yeah, that little first idea. Um and I mean, I loved working on the shows with you. It was a lot of fun. I think we had a, a lot of great interviews and a lot of great episodes. And so when I was thinking about who to have on, and I was like, "Well, Jeff is new to this. You got me involved. So this would be a good way for Jeff to kind of get thrown into the deep end to learn <laughs> some of the things that I, I've been teaching him over time. But I think it's interesting because people always think podcasting is just easy. Like there's the, the line I hear all the time of, oh, well, you just sit down and hit the button and you just talk for a while. And then when you're done, you just upload a file and it's done. And it's like, no, there's a lot more. No, than that. no, no. The no. hard part's making it look easy, isn't it? That's the trick. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. All the prep work. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is and true. And seeing as how... Seeing as how you've done this for, at this point, well over 10 years, I mean, you're probably approaching 15 years at this point, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the stuff that I've done professionally, I think, is just about 13 years, but then, of course, played around with it for a little bit. Did a bunch of silly stuff before I got serious about it. 
So it's been a little bit. It's been about 15 years total. That's incredible. Which is wild. Yeah, you've definitely been in it for the long haul. And the one thing that I've always loved about the Jupiter Broadcasting stuff is that even though things have changed video format to audio format and, and other things have changed just overall over that, that wide span, you've always managed to keep the quality up. Oh, well, thank you. And That's something we do try yeah. to work really hard on. Yeah, I think you do a fantastic job. And the thing that is surprising to me is if you look at what like people are doing online now on YouTube that have channels up, it's it's good quality. But if you then take what they're doing, you were doing that back in 2010s and even before. <laughs> this and is, it's yeah, like this is a thing. It really it, is. It was so much harder then than it is now. The, <laughs> no the barrier idea. to entry. Exactly. And that was like, I got to get Chris on because he had probably has some horror stories to ex <laughs> like to, to talk to Jeff and be like, OK, let me tell you how bad this used to be. Yeah, because it was rough. Well, mm -hmm. you know, it started rough, too, uh, because not only was like it was tough for a platform like YouTube to do high definition video when we first started, it was actually, if you can believe it, it was all standard definition and, and some of it was four by three video quite a bit of it was all four by three video so when we mm. really first started tooling for video we actually had to tool for four by three and then quickly changed to 16 by nine as youtube rolled out high definition support so that's that's been quite a while ago and one of the number one bits of feedback we would get immediately is hey why do you have that dumb microphone hey you got those big <laughs> headphones on what are you playing radio <laughs> what is this a radio show and now now if you turn on ESPN or you, you turn on um, Joe Rogan on YouTube they have big mm -hmm. podcast microphones and headphones and it's just become totally commonplace mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's really interesting how that's changed I mean part of me deep down still likes the no microphone look I mean yeah. in the in the in the video chat that we're doing I actually have a boom mic right off um, right off camera I just I like the the no mic but the fact is, Everybody does it. Yeah, I guess the it's market not just got that used much to it. of a detractor. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I guess enough people did it. You know, what a big part of it was people trying to convert their their radio or their podcast into also a video. Maybe it was just clips, but I think that really kind of mm -hmm. it just you know it just started happening at enough of a of a massive scale that I think people stopped caring. Like the other thing that used to be really different about YouTube was jump. You didn't really have jump cuts until YouTubers like Philip DeFranco and others made it okay to have jump cuts on YouTube. And that changes the entire editing game. It makes it much simpler to edit. But when we first got on there, we had smooth transitions between every camera shot and all of that stuff because we were trying to be more like traditional media, I guess. I, I It's just, you always try to hide your edits. You know, at least I thought. But it's changed. Yeah, I remember times when, you know, you would be like a minute into a segment and there'd be like, you know, a foible or whatever, like you'd say the wrong thing. And it'd be like, oh, hold on, let, let's go back and restart that. Even though you were only you know, a minute in, it was, it's just going to be easier to redo that minute than to try to get fancy doing cuts and all this other <laughs> stuff to cover that up. Yeah. Which, with jump cutting, of course, you can completely get around that. And like on this show, this is audio only. So if I say something stupid, it's really easy for me just to go in and cut out that one second of time and no one has to know that I was an idiot. <laughs> oh, right. I still know. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true. That's yeah. True. Yeah, Jeff still knows. <laughs> yeah, it really is a totally different... Uh, ball game with audio because you can even rearrange parts of the sentence or sometimes when we're explaining something and we, we somebody will take a crack at it and then they'll kind of state it over again but even in in a more concise way sometimes we'll just cut mm -hmm. that first version of it because they you know just yeah. a little tighter now how how much different was doing video at the beginning I mean not just by by format but like these days with OBS you can just 
open up your laptop, crack the thing open, and just go into OBS and be like, import, webcam, done, and, and you're ready. Yeah. Obviously, OBS was not Around. a thing when you first started doing video. No. No, I started really early on experimenting with a macOS application called CamTwist, I think it was, then moved up to Wirecast by Telestream. Okay. And to, to get HD Wirecast, that was $1,000 to license that, plus you needed a Mac. Um, and then mm -hmm. shortly after that, when I realized I needed to scale and have better superior hardware, I got into Hackintoshes for a couple of years. <laughs> so I did the Hackintosh thing with Wirecast, which was pretty pretty solid towards the end with the mm -hmm. exception of a Hackintosh. And then uh, <laughs> thankfully, you know, around 2017, 2018, OBS, the open source streaming software, started to get to a point where we could take it pretty seriously. And then in 2018, we made the complete switch to just Linux and OBS. And it took, it took over, you know, about a 10 year decade of trying different things before we were able to adopt that solution. And it's just it's it's a massive benefit for us because it means we can get consumer grade uh, hardware that we can build ourselves that can be faster than a stock Mac and we can load Linux on there, which is our preferred operating system. And then we can use mm -hmm. OBS, which is free, opposed to a thousand dollars per version <laughs> with Wirecast. It was Wirecast what you were using as well to do the green screening, because that was another thing that I loved about the show is you just didn't have some things behind you as far as a set. Like with the green screening, you could actually kind of get more fancy. And I know for a while there, there was a contest in the chat room of, you know, who could come up with a more interesting background for Chris to have behind him during the show. Yeah. And you could also put the stories behind you or that was a big component mm -hmm. of doing video that we we maybe took a little too seriously now that I look at what's been successful on YouTube. Um, but we would try to match up visuals for every segment. And so we would be like if we were talking about the plasma desktop or GNOME shell, we would be showing that to you. Or if we were talking about Windows 8 or whatever it was, we'd have that up. And sometimes, kind of like the weatherman, we could be in front of it. Uh, or sometimes we'd have it take full screen. And that was very intentional, planning that, making it so that way we could have a green screen to show that kind of stuff. It was a big part of what we did that was a lot of additional prep that didn't really serve the audio audience, which is actually the larger audience. And mm -hmm. we sort of played a little bit of a role in why we kind of pivoted more to audio. So you had mentioned early on that you were starting on 4x3, and my immediate thought was, I wonder if he was using one of those uh, junky security cameras. So I think <laughs> back then, I had a junky security camera, I was trying to make it work as, webcam is not the right word, but uh, those, those very early days, we didn't really have a lot of hardware, there wasn't much to use for, you know, cheap video cameras, and I was curious what you were using back then. It was probably a HDV or maybe just a DV camera to start with. I think if I recall, it was a, like one of those Canon handheld camcorders, like the Canon okay. HDV series. Uh, the HD, I think it was like the HDV 20 and 30. Okay. Which were really tape cameras, but they had HDMI output, which we could use. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. that, was, that was pretty great. You know, the, the, really what, what ended up happening too is YouTube's a bit of a dumpster fire these days. I, I, it is... <laughs> Right. I mean, it is. It's a dumpster fire full of diapers, really, is what it is. It's bad. And it, it will think about it from several perspectives. First of all, think about what's clicks. Uh, people click on salacious things. People click on really kind of things that are designed to grab attention. That just sort of speaks mm -hmm. to people, people's worst base instincts right there. Mm -hmm. The other thing you'll notice on YouTube that happens all the time is creators, even creators who are like famous people that are respectable, over time succumb to the will of the algorithm 
And they start doing things like posing with silly faces or some zany mm-hmm. image with them in it. And it kind of detracts from their brand and makes them less respectable as a creator. Mm-hmm. But they have to do it to feed that algorithm. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, there is just the horrible bot system that over the years has riddled holes into our collection because the goalpost of what's allowed is moved constantly. And so a lot mm-hmm. of our back catalog, which was fine for a decade, is all of a sudden pulled. And so as a creator, you have your content constantly getting moved, removed. And, and even if they don't remove it now, they might in a couple of years. Monetization is up and down constantly. Selling sponsors now requires this big, huge disclaimer that goes across the video that says paid promotion in this video. And it's really heavy handed. And then on top of that, you have Google, which is kind of a disastrous company in so many different respects, who is controlling the entire thing (laughs) and essentially has their foot on your primary source of income. So to Mm -hmm. me, I'm really glad I I still publish on YouTube and I'll still use it as a tool, Mm -hmm. but I'm really glad it's not how I make my living anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to ask you about because, you know, YouTube has been around for a long time and you could have opted back in the day to use that as like your primary uh, distribution system. But instead, you decided to roll your own and use a CDN and do that that way. Yeah. What kind of led you back in the day? Because obviously we had no idea that YouTube was going to turn into the flaming cesspool that it is. <laughs> what what led you back then to decide this is way better for me to just roll my own? than to use another platform as my base. In part, it was control, being able to deliver certain things in a certain way. But the other part was just that YouTube was so, so variable. It was so random. And what I would, what I was finding is that people would find us on YouTube and then they would, if they wanted to stick around, they'd come to our website. And then I needed to supply versions they could watch on their set-top box because a lot of people were rolling their own Cody boxes and, and other boxes back mm-hmm. then. I needed to make something that would work on their phone while they're in the car and all these different options that just YouTube wouldn't really ever serve those niches. And so it was kind of trying to to look at the idea of, well, we have an audience that's particularly technical because we talk about Linux technology and system administration. We talk about security and development. So they really kind of know what they want and they want to watch it on their desktop. They want to watch it on their phone. They want to watch it on their TV. Mm -hmm. So we just had to come up with a system to create formats that would work on that because back then... You know, a device that was maybe a mobile device couldn't couldn't play HD video. And then we just kind of evolved it over time to keep it modern with the infrastructure and to keep it modern with the playback devices. And YouTube just played a less and less significant role as time went on. And now looking at it, you're right. It looks like it was a it was the right decision, in part because mm-hmm. there's nobody who can take down my video if I say something they don't agree with, which could happen someday. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's not fair to say could. I, I think it's more reasonable to say it will. Yeah. You know, you talk to every content creator and every one of them has had something slammed or cut oh, yeah. or mysteriously disappeared. And it's just, it's going to happen. I've had, I've had music that I've licensed that has gotten my video flagged, but it's only happened once. But my absolute favorite YouTube bots are horrible story is the time they copyright flagged me for my own voice, for my <laughs> voice. <laughs> They copyright flagged me. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm, I'm sorry for laughing at that, but that's that's did, uh, ridiculous. Did you not? Did you not get a license from yourself, Chris? Right. You, didn't, you didn't fill out that you, paperwork. You can imagine yeah. the, when I contested that one. How I had some fun with that one. Like, 
<laughs> he wrote on a piece of paper, I can do whatever I want with my voice. And he's like, well, that's not a mechanical license. That's not legal. No, it was more like a dissertation on why this is a great example of why their automated content flagging system is horrible, anti-creator, and never going to work mm -hmm. right. <laughs> Yep. It just took the opportunity to let him hear about it. I'm sure it went nowhere. It just went into some bin somewhere. But it's pretty bad. Well, that's the other problem is, yeah, is YouTube is so big. Even when you have a legitimate issue, you're not going to be able to get through to a human being who's actually going to take it seriously unless you are either A, mm -hmm. massive, and you already have a contact, or B, you're friends with somebody who is massive who has a contact that can then put in a word for you. Because yeah. I've seen tons of times right. when yeah. people, like smaller channels, like the fans then go raid other big channels and they're like, hey, have you heard what's going on with this channel? Can you help them out? And they can help them out. But it's like, <laughs> that's really awful that that's the resource that's available is have your fans go annoy another creator so they might be able to step in and get someone at YouTube actually involved. And yes, yeah, so once you get to a certain size, you get assigned a rep. And depending on your size, that rep's more or less responsive. Uh, and... It's not so, you know, uh, as I get older and cynical, I look at that and I go, it's not that YouTube has to be avoided. It's that it is a market with certain conditions that you got to think about. And so that'll put limitations on what you make. And so, mm -hmm. in my opinion, what I'll do is if I ever get back into YouTube in a serious way, which could happen, even despite everything I've just said, I'm going to do it in a way that accommodates for a lot of these platform deficiencies. And so you just kind of mm -hmm. have to be looking at it in that way, like podcasting. Podcasting is the opposite. It's a wild west. You can do whatever you want. You can build your own system. You can use a hosted system. But it doesn't have necessarily a built-in discovery mechanism. There's no there's no grand algorithm surfacing content for people to listen mm -hmm. to. And there's no built-in monetization platform. You don't just check a box and now your podcast is monetized. So, you know, you could argue there's some definite deficiencies in the podcast realm too, but I, I look at that as just, well, that's another set of business variables, essentially, you got to just kind of factor mm -hmm. for. Yeah. And of course, then there's always the question of if that existed and let's say Spotify had some magic checkbox that you could click and get monetization. What then are the third and fourth order effects of that, of then right. Spotify wanting to do similar things that YouTube is doing now when they decide on a random Wednesday that they don't like people wearing orange shirts in videos, so they're going to take them down. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that interesting that Spotify is kind of trying to basically make a YouTube for podcasts in mm -hmm. a way? And they've, I mean, the most obvious investment, right, is the Joe Rogan license deal that yeah. they did. That's huge. And kind of a mixed bag for them. It's gotten them a lot of controversy, mm -hmm. too, uh, because mm -hmm. people at Spotify, I guess, staff at Spotify have an issue with some of the guests that Rogan chooses to have on, which was mm -hmm. always the deal with Joe's show, so it's not like <laughs> right. it's new. <laughs> This is not a mystery, guys. You knew what you were signing up for. Right. Literally every one of them is public, so not a surprise. Uh, but they also did a contract with Michelle Obama for a podcast. They've done some really big names. Mm -hmm. um, and they bought a couple of dynamic ad insertion companies. You know, these, these businesses, their whole deal was they'd take your MP3 file, you give them a couple of time code points in the show where there's maybe a pause, and then they insert a brand fresh new ad every download. And if you think about it, it's mm. kind of an, it, the idea is, well, it's just obvious in some sense because those old Linux action shows that you helped me with, they have the same sponsors mm -hmm. that they had in them when we did them originally. Yeah. And so, well, mm -hmm. I, you know, people are still downloading those. I could be monetizing that entire back catalog. I mean, you can see how the bean counters arrive at this brilliant mm -hmm. solution. Yeah. 
Uh, to say nothing that dynamically inserted ads is just one step worse than radio commercials. But, yeah. Uh, so Spotify bought a couple of shops that that do this tech, and their intention is to bake it in, and they are offering um, creators an interesting deal. I got an email from a third company that Spotify is, now owns, and the deal was essentially for me to take all of the shows at Jupiter Broadcasting, which is a handful of shows, and move them over to a Spotify-owned network. And if I did that, they could guarantee me immediately an ad deal in each of the mm -hmm. shows, but it was an extremely low payout. Mm -hmm. um, like, couldn't, couldn't, you know, feed the family payout. And then additionally, if I agreed to use their entire stack, I would get access to every song in the Spotify library I could play in my podcast, like a radio station. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That seems valuable. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at that and I went, I could almost see launching a show just on their stack just to do that. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. You know, but I wouldn't want to move all my shows. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, 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 of course, opted not to do it, obviously. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want any of that, really. But mm -hmm. I could see somebody out there going, oh, I've always wanted to do like a music DJ show, and now I could have access to the Spotify library. So they do have a couple of carrots to, to sort of incentivize. And if you, if you had no ad deal at all, if you had no ads, and you really wanted a sponsor, and Spotify came along and said, hey, you know, we'll pay you a little bit if you run this ad, there's going to be creators that will take that. So they're really trying. Mm -hmm. They, they want to become... They, what they want to do is they want to take podcasting into the big ad business, like the TV budget stuff, like your Ford, yeah. uh, you know, your, your diamond ring kind of sponsors, the really big money sponsorships. They want to sell those really, really big deals and then get the numbers that they sell by dynamically inserting them into their most popular shows. And that's, mm -hmm. their, that's their grand podcast strategy. And they need you to use their client for the way their ad tech mm -hmm. works. Yeah, and, I mean, I can so, understand that because obviously from their perspective, you know, like you were mentioning the old uh, the old Linux Action Show, you know, those ads that you put in are, are still there. And I, I don't know if, you know, Danica Patrick telling me that, you know, to use the Linux promo code at GoDaddy is still going to work nowadays. But, you know, for you as the content creator, that's an advantage that you give people when you were out, you know, sourcing your own ads and stuff, um, your own sponsors, because... That it's in there, it will always be in there. It's not like this sponsorship lasts for this amount of time. I mean, that may be the case, but the benefit for the person that you are working with, the company you are working with, is that even after that deal ends, there still is follow-on people that are going to hear that advertisement. Where if it goes to yeah. a real-time thing, that goes out the window. So in some ways, that can actually yeah, hurt right. a listener or hurt a podcast because... There, it's now definitely only between these dates, and you get what you get, and then it's done. Right. That seems like that could lower the price, and then if it's if it, it's if it's an automated bidding system, that seems like that could also end up creating a race to the bottom in terms of price, and it could make it harder for some creators to actually monetize, and which means it wouldn't be sustainable. And I'm actually not sure this is playing out for Spotify. Just a couple of days ago, Citibank released a study saying that Spotify's big bet on podcasting is not working out at all, that their multi-million dollar bet uh, has not boosted downloads, they have not increased revenue, um, and their stock's down as a result. They say, to date, we have not seen a material positive inflection in app downloads or premium subscriptions as a result of their investments. And additionally, 
in the last week, it was announced that the public radio group like NPR and others that own Pocket Casts mm-hmm. are putting Pocket Casts back up for sale again. Hmm. Mm. And I just wonder if we're starting to see some of the dominoes from 2020 fall and maybe the steam that's been in the podcast industry, quote unquote, for the last few years is maybe slowing down a bit. It's not a collapse, but I think maybe it's just slowing down and you're starting to see a bit of a correction. Spotify news is bad, though. I mean, yeah. That's, Citibank's basically saying they've wasted their money. There mm-hmm. was an article that came out in Forbes. Um, it was, let's see, when was it? It was this year. Uh, I forget what day in January it came out. But they talked about how a lot of the big brands were decreasing their digital ad spending, and that they actually saw, like, uh, okay, hold on, let me pull it up. Uh, when PNG turned off $20 million of their digital ad spending, they saw no change in business outcomes. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, this, I read several articles on this. I was so shocked by that. That, that's, there's so much to unpack there and so many dangerous things for content creators and, well, gosh, all over the place. It seems like if this is true and these, these patterns can be repeated and, and replicated, because it's, it's an experiment, mm-hmm. right? We turn it off. See what happens. If you can replicate this, and the articles I was reading were saying several people, several companies had turned off their digital spends, and they all had the same experience. Doesn't that collapse the entire advertising-based you know, revenue model there? If it, if it doesn't mean anything, if it doesn't help anything, why would you spend all that money? You know, I, I have noticed, working with companies as a contractor, working in companies as an employee, I mean, have you guys ever seen this? It seems like the marketing department doesn't even know quite what the product is. Oh my God. (laughs) One million times. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That's what the problem here is. I think is they're just like throwing money at the wall and you're getting like these crappy radio ads and stuff. And they don't even know, like they think they know who to target, but they don't even understand the product themselves. Mm -hmm. So they can't understand the user base or where they're at. Um, and I think it leads to just a massive waste of money on advertising. Mm-hmm. And, and and then you think about it, right? It's not just the money they spend on advertising, but the entire marketing department budget for all the people that work in that department, yeah. too. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're going all these different channels. You've got all these different content things you've got to make. And now, yeah. And so you get you get basically a double double drop in, in costs if you decide, well, we're just not going to do this anymore. Yeah. One of the articles I read said they were laying off half of their marketing department because they realized that, hey, this isn't working and we're just going to go ahead and carry this out. So I can't remember who it was that was doing that. I have this weird sense, too, that there's going to be not really a backlash, but I can't think of a better term, but you, a, a trend that I have benefited from as a, I've done a little bit of, as I was going independent, mm-hmm. I did a little bit of side contracting to help uh, you know keep the lights on. And the thing that really was the return return thing that basically every client was trying to get to was they're trying to have some sort of online media presence. And it could be that they were, I talked to some free software developers who have a project and they want to have an online media presence. I talked to companies that are doing enterprise monitoring and they want to have an online YouTube channel and and a, and a, and a podcast presence. They all want to be putting out content that demonstrates that the people that work for their companies are intelligent and tapped in and they all want to be creating something that keeps people engaged with their brand and in their quote-unquote community. And so mm-hmm. it's been a huge explosion of all different kinds of shops, from large enterprise shops, uh, like the Solar Winds people. I don't, you know, everybody's familiar <laughs> Solar Winds right now. They have oh, a yes. they have a ginormous video arm that frequently produces lots of video content. They have a big community mm-hmm. forum area. It's an entire aspect of their business, and they. They have studios with lighting, professional cameras, editors, 
multiple hosts and they get maybe 200 views, maybe a hundred, wow. maybe, you know, it's really the return on, on, on that investment of time and, and staff and gear is obviously not materializing. And you, I think I see this as I was working with several clients, this was the repeated trend. And by the time I was, you know, kind of done doing it, I, I what the thing I was warning them about is you have to build something that doesn't end up like this, you know, because if you're going to put all this time and energy into this, it needs to return some sort of value and you need to define what success looks like for you right ahead. Uh, because otherwise you're just going to be putting this stuff out and it'll get a hundred views. And I think there'll be a bit of a backlash for a back of a letter ter- better term where companies will realize they've actually been harming their brands mm-hmm. by making all of this quote unquote free content and having their video experts on YouTube and everybody's got a YouTube channel that produces some product but when you when you suck at it, when you when you're poor quality and you have maybe a bad host or bad audio, I think it actually makes the brand look cheap. It makes the brand look amateur and unorganized. And I think it actually does more harm than it does good when they put out these podcasts that sound like crap or embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And I think long term you're going to see companies actually stop producing as much of this free content as we see essentially getting dumped on the internet right now. I mean, look how many crazy corporate podcasts and YouTube videos there are right now. It's mm-hmm. just way too much and it's all garbage and nobody's watching it. And the and the people that host these things are generally not doing a very good job. I mean, some people get it right to their mm-hmm. credit. Some people do get it right, but not the majority. And I I had a handful of clients just over the summer into into fall and winter and this is what they all wanted to do. They all, all mm-hmm. of them. And I just, you know, and I would try to talk, talk some of them out of it, actually. Like, this is just going to be a waste. Like, what are you doing here? But it's all considered marketing now. It's like marketing for the new internet era. And um, I, I think it's led to this, this massive over amount of content that we have available to us. And nobody has time to watch it all either. So there's going to be backlashes in several ways because of it. I think everybody wants to be Red Bull. You know, the, the Bread Bull has been putting out content for, what, 15, 20 years? And they're, they're seeking all these other alternative lifestyle channels. And, and right. you'll see them on in restaurants or, or in bars. And they'll just have this channel of cool videos sponsored by Red Bull, you know? Right. And everybody, everybody's like, I want that. Make that. Do that. And that, the only, you know, only a few people can actually pull that off. And you know, Procter & Gamble does not need a lifestyle channel. Let's just be honest, you know? What do they need with that? But I'm sure they've got a massive department trying to do it. And at some point, they're going to realize uh, that we can't be Red Bull. We can't. Yeah, and this. it's funny too because you have these billion-dollar companies that are trying to do this, and yet they're getting bested by some thirteen-year-old kid on Twitch. And it's like yeah. you have yep. a team yeah. of professionals, and a thirteen-year-old is wiping the floor with you in production quality. Like, how? That's, that's kind of the story of Marquez Brownlee on YouTube, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, he was just a kid that started a YouTube channel, and he did better than almost every tech reviewer out mm-hmm. there, and he grew a huge audience as a result of it. And uh, I think, too, the other problem here, kind of going back to the, the marketing department problem, is corporations are not particularly great at doing things that are not their core business and their core revenue generators for really mm-hmm. understandable reasons. Right. And online free content that people watch on YouTube isn't how they're paying the bills. And so it just, at the end of the day isn't prioritized like the widget they make and ship and sell millions mm-hmm. of. Yeah, and the other thing is, I mean, effectively, what they're putting out as videos and st- free content, it's just glorified ads. And we are bombarded with so many ads now. Like, when I browse a website, my eyes glaze over the ads. I practically don't even really see them anymore. 
They're just that's the yeah. space where my eye knows don't go there. This is where you want to. This is where you want to read. So there's got to mm-hmm. be a name for that, right? That that sort of ad blindness, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. So like, I, I can see that being another problem because you know ads became so prolific that now we're just most people use an ad blocker, and if you don't use an ad blocker, you're still blocking them out mentally, so you're not seeing them, which of course is going to dry up revenue streams for all sorts of businesses and all sorts of sites and media outlets. Um, so Chris, this leads to a question that I have for you, which is when you started Jupiter Broadcasting, you were of course entirely privately owned, and then you moved into having a corporate backer, and you've recently moved back out to be completely private owned. So not to get into the any any gory details, but just stepping back and looking at the whole thing, what kind of thoughts do you have about the decision to go to a corporate and then to go back to private? Which do you prefer better? Just really whatever direction you want to take it. Sure. Yeah, boy, it was tricky, you know, because you go from doing something that was for about a decade, just this independent thing. And then when you join a company, you have structure all of a sudden applied. There's processes. And there was an adjustment period for that, but they were pretty great about ramping ramping us up. And then the other thing I did is I took my RV down to Texas and I just lived down there for three months after the merger to just like handle stuff in person, meet people in person, um, you know, build out my team as best I could in person. Plus people, one of the company policies they would have is when you're a new hire, you'd fly into the central office. So I'd just be down there to meet the people we were hiring and all that kind of stuff. And that smoothed that out. And I was lucky to come in at a time where the company was really kind of forming its leadership structure. And so I could kind of apply my my take on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they they looked at it as Jupiter Broadcasting had successfully built a Linux audience. And that's what they wanted to build was a Linux audience because they did Linux training, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, as as time goes on, a startup like Linux Academy or any other kind of business that's really just an accelerated growth, especially with VC funding, things shift and change. And so what became a real skill set was learning to just kind of roll with the punches, you know, and just adapt to the change as it came along. And then um, I think it was in December of 2019, we d- we found out that Linux Academy and a Cloud Guru were merging, which then brought a whole nother series of changes. So it felt like the two years that we were uh, a part of another organization, it felt like it was kind of consistent transitions and change, one after the mm-hmm. other. It was it was a lot of that. At the same time, it was the biggest my team had ever got. I think we had like eight people on the team, and we were actually at one point looking at growing that even more. And so learning to manage people like that and put processes in place and not try not to be a bad boss, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I was learning all of that. And so... When we got to when we got to um, this year, and we kind of looked at what they wanted to accomplish, and really they, and for really obvious reasons, they want their primary stars and the primary focus to be like their training architects, the people that train the content, because that's who the students are building a relationship mm-hmm. with, right? And the podcasts weren't built around these training architects, and so we were talking about what can we do, and everything just kind of felt like, oh, I don't think the audience would go respond well to that, or, oh, we don't think that'd make good content. And then we kind of just said, you know, really clearly what we need to do is just kind of go our separate ways and try to come up with a way that is amicable for everybody. And they fully owned everything, you know? They had they bought the company, so it was it was really up to them. They had they had the final mm-hmm. say. I could make a proposal, uh, which I did, you know, and we worked on that for quite a while. And 
they they were really generous in letting me make that transition. And um, now we've ended it on the other end of it, and they're a sponsor for a couple of our shows. And so we have a relationship still in that capacity, but we're otherwise completely uh, independent. And coming out of it, I obviously way prefer being my own boss and setting my own schedule. But I think part of the reason why it's working, and it is it is working, you know, when we first went independent, it was day by day. It was literally day by day. Then it became week by week. Then it became month by month. And as of right now, as of January, it's quarter by quarter, which is, hey, that's yeah. just about where I wanted to be. It's pretty good. I'd love to be year by year one day, but I don't know if that's capable. I don't know. On the internet, for a business on the internet, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's taking the lessons I learned while in some of that structure and processes and applying the ones that worked for mm-hmm. me now. And so I'm able to kind of do things a little bit better than I did before. I mean, I'm still me and I still have my flaws, but I I have a little more structure with the way I do things. I'm a little more organized. At the end of the day, I sit down, I capture all of the tasks I can think of for the next day. And then when I start my morning, I it's the first thing I open up is that list. And I'm much better about email and getting back to messages to an extent than I used to be. And a lot of the business sense and organization sort of stuck around. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, a, I'm able to have a little more freedom mm-hmm. and I'm able to do things, you know, the way I want to do them. And, and I was able to stay true to what the audience's expectations were, which was ultimately always my main thing is when I was navigating from from acquisition to demerger, like how do I just keep the audience happy? How do I keep delivering the shows? How do we keep the shows going out on time? Keep Keep the focus on the content because... There was a lot going on at different points in time, and I feel like I was successful in those those things. Like if those were my goalposts, I I I met I met them. Uh, but it's a lot more of an ass kicking than I remembered it, even though I had been indie for about a decade, <laughs> right? Eight years of it. I don't know how I forgot, but it is it is an ass kicking to own your own business. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like so. Just you know, this is totally fine, but you know, this is we're we're recording on a weekend. You know, it's the mm-hmm. evening, and this is the third show I've done today. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's a real hustle. And then, you know, doing the sales, getting that from zero to as, as best as I can, mm-hmm. uh, as fast mm-hmm. as I could. Uh, that was tricky. And it's been it's been a it's been a real battle, but also it's been going in the right direction. So all things considered, I'm pretty happy since I did it during a pandemic and a and a lockdown and a economic decline. Like, uh, you know, it was a big risky time and so far, we'll see. We'll see if I make it to the end of 2021. But so far, that process has been pretty good. And I think it really resonated with the audience. Mm-hmm. You probably saw yep. that. It just really, people really seem to really respond to it well. And it's uh, it's nice to be, you know, um, an entrepreneur of a sense again, like building a business mm-hmm. and trying to think about how to like do things long term. Like that feels good again. I like that aspect of it. I didn't really quite like that aspect before, but this time around, I'm, I'm kind of liking that a little bit. I'm tolerating <laughs> it. <laughs> I still, at the end of the day, just want to make shows. Yeah. Though. And that's really, mm-hmm. you know, that's always been my thing. It's like one of the reasons why I sold it and one of the reasons why I demerged is I've always wanted to just get whatever is in my way out of my way so I can make shows. That's all I want to yeah. do. <laughs> so with, mm-hmm. the, with the, obviously before when you were private, and then after the demerge, you're private again. Um, in the past, you used Patreon, and you have a, a backer thing now that you that you use. Yep. Do you think that that actually lends itself better to the process? Because instead of just being responsible to a, a corporate board, you're actually responsible to the people that you're making the content for. Yeah, it's a, well, there's it's not just that because yes, 
there is uh, there is like this um what you're t- what you're touching on there what it really feels like as somebody who's making the content is like this uh this loyalty shift because you're not going you're not going in the direction of of where you think even if they've never told you uh to make you know if they they never actually told us anything they never directed anything mm-hmm. that went on air uh, but you know, it, you kind of know what they want. You kind of know. Well, mm-hmm. we'll try to talk a little bit more about cloud stuff because they're doing more cloud training, or we'll try to we'll try to just try to accommodate the rest of the team because really we were invested. We were all a big team, and that's you know we're all part of the same organism. And now it's not only is it so. There's that shift of like, well, what is 100 percent what the audience expects, which is really mm-hmm. nice. But it also means for certain kinds of content. Like some content that I do is 100% audience funded. I never have to worry about like, oh, what would be a title that gets a lot of clicks? Or what's a topic I could discuss that would people get really fired up about and I get a lot of audience interaction? Or, or you know, I got to make sure I get so many comments or people like mm-hmm. this because, you know, I need to get the algorithm to boost it. Like I don't have to worry about any of right. that. The only number mm-hmm. that matters is the audience funding number. And that is a massive shift in the way you make mm-hmm. stuff. Because it's mm-hmm. it's less about trying to just like on YouTube. That's part of the reason why I think it's a dumpster fire. Is it's constantly trying to one up each other. It's the same problem on Twitter. If you want people to retweet and like, you got to grab them. And if you start grabbing them, then the next time you want their attention, you got to up the ante even more. Right. And you mm-hmm. just completely bypass that entire spiral that creators get stuck into when it's audience funding. Because it's just what do they want? Mm-hmm. What do they they want the best content possible. They want you to be genuine to yourself and genuine to the topic. And beyond that, they don't really need much else. Keep them entertained. Uh, and so that's why I think crowdfunding, even if you can't 100% crowdfund, if you can crowdfund enough that you've got walkaway money from a deal, then I think you're in a pretty good position. And then the more you can crowdfund, the, the better in a position you obviously are. But even if you're only partially crowdfunding, you at least have that negotiating chip and you don't have to take every deal that comes along. Yeah. The other thing exactly. is I've always viewed uh, crowdfunding kind of like the oil well system. Um, and Jeff's actually in, in Texas, so he knows all about oil wells, is if one well dries up, mm-hmm. it's not the end of the world because they have hundreds and thousands of wells. Whereas mm-hmm. when you have one tap that is supplying everything, if it goes, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's diversifying. Yeah. And, and the audience has been awesome. About mm-hmm. that, we've launched membership programs with our podcasts and, and it tried to give them a little something extra as a thank you, like limited ads mm-hmm. or, or additional bonus mm-hmm. content or stuff like that. And uh, it, it's 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 really cool because it shows that people really find an actual quantifiable value in what you do, too, which which honestly gets me kind of excited about doing what I'm mm-hmm. doing. Yeah. And you have always That's been able cool. to generate and cultivate an audience that is passionate. I mean, I think back to Linux Fest Northwest, you know, over the years and how many people would travel from all around the country to come to a Linux conference. I mean, yeah, they love Linux. That's why they watch the show. But it was to come and meet you and to meet other people that enjoyed the Linux Action Show as well and to hang out together. And like that kind of cultivation of a community is really amazing. And it's a reflection of the open source community, and it's one of the reasons why I loved being a part of JB for so long. Well, I agree. I think it's, I think what it is, especially for those of us who've been around for a little while, is it starts with a realization that, oh my gosh, these people know what I'm talking about. When I, 
when I say web server, they know what I mean. Like this is like this is this is awesome. I can talk to people that know what I'm right. Like that's how it starts. And then the shows mm-hmm. kind of become like a rallying thing for that community. That's what they're 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 in a sense. That's what brings them through the door and why the, why they are there. But it's really the community interaction for a lot of people that really keeps them engaged because it's a bunch of like minded people. And these days, it's really nice to have something that isn't as polarized as other things about our lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. you can have people that will debate, you know, Linux stuff and technology stuff all the time, but the stakes are not as high as some of the other stuff people are dealing with in life. And so it offers somewhere where you can still be invested. It still has some material impact possibly on your day job. And you have a, a community that is, at the end of the day, agrees more than they disagree. Mm-hmm. And you bring those things together with the shows. And I just think it made for just a, a really nice combination. And it's still going really strong. All these years later, it's there's more chat platforms, so it's a little more all over the place. It's a little more spread out than it used right. to be. But you know, we're just recently getting into Matrix, loving yeah, that. Yeah, Matrix is awesome. That's been pretty great. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the fact that I mean, you know, like you said, it's 13 years now, and you're still going strong. I think that's a testament to what you've been able to build. And I, I, I appreciate you back in 2013 willing to give some random guy online that you had chatted with a few times and who you knew was a distro developer a chance at, at helping out because, you know, it spawned a greater love of, of doing media in me. And of course, now here I'm doing some of my own stuff. So I really appreciate that uh, you gave me the opportunity. And I'm I really am thankful that you were willing to come on and, and be our first guest on this show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because I wanted the first one to be something special. I just didn't want it to be, oh, we just have somebody. And I really felt like since you were the one that first got me into the whole podcasting scene and taking it seriously, I thought having you on as the first guest was just the right thing to do. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come on and talk to me. Well, thank you. You were always great at landing guests. So I can safely say it's only going to get better from here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we really appreciate you coming on. I do have one question for you, though. Since you have gone back private again, I'm looking over the list of archived Jupiter Broadcasting shows, and some of these look really interesting. Hmm. Um, when you're choosing what content to publish, are you going back and, and picking out stuff that was working before and republishing or bringing it back up to speed, or are you trying to create new content more? Like, I'm it's looking at the faux show looks interesting to me, honestly. Yeah, yeah, the faux show is one that I know Angela would love to bring back. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of both. We look at, like, past performance versus, like, what new ideas are. Um, Mm-hmm. And we've we've obviously found that stuff that we do in the Linux and open source space performs the well at the best, mm-hmm. for, you know, out of anything else we've done. Um, and so I think it's just like the audience, they associate the brand with that category. So that's it just sticks a little bit better. But mm-hmm. um, I, I actually have been messing around with a peer tube instance and have been thinking, you know, if we are, we're going to get back into video, that'd be a fun place to experiment. And I think one of the shows we'd probably experiment with is Faux Show. That'd be awesome. A couple of others that we messed around with before, but yeah, you know, it's that stuff was that stuff too felt really ahead of its time because it was green screen, it was embedded chat room in the lower third, it was all of that stuff that is a lot more common now. But mm-hmm. yeah, now I had to custom build, literally build like the frames for all that in the some of it. Like I would, and I I don't know I don't know anything about graphic arts, right? I'm a, I'm a horrible at it, so I'd have to like just hobble stuff together for a while until eventually people started helping me out. <laughs> I think they took pity on me. Chris, this is terrible. I must help you. Essentially. Speaking of old shows, it's uh, it's about time for Plan B to come back, isn't it? Man, no kidding, right? <laughs> you know you know what happened. Plan B died the day Linux Unplugged was born. Is uh, My co-host on Plan B needed to take like a month mm-hmm. off, and I was like, well, I'll try out this, you know, that's when we'll, do, we'll just do that same Tuesday yeah. time. Is And 
Linux Unplugged took off. And I was like, sorry, mate. <laughs> you took a month off and the other show took off. And like, I got to pay the bills. But I, I really yep. agree. Like, ah, that would have been that would have been a hell of a show to still have going right now with Bitcoin being where it is. Yeah. And just the explosion mm-hmm. of all the other cryptocurrencies over the last several years yes. is just mm-hmm. that that is just a, yeah. a entire field to go into. Yeah. Well, I think there's going to be a steady stream of interest in there. So still, it's it's never too late to bring that back. Uh, now that it's Maybe. official that Bitcoin is a thing, and yeah. we have people investing billions of dollars in Bitcoin. or I don't whatever. think it's going away anytime soon, that's for sure. I, I don't think it is either. And you yeah. know what's also not going away? Beer. So you need to bring back the beer show. Yeah, <laughs> the beer show. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask if beer is tasty. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think my co-host in that one started taking a medication that conflicted with alcohol. So that one... <laughs> Well, that's unfortunate <laughs> yeah 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 i got it. it was getting a little wild towards the end anyways but that out of all the shows i've ever done is probably the most fun and you know for a couple of them we actually went on location to breweries mm-hmm. and Ooh, interviewed cool. brewmasters and and, re- and reviewed their beer and and we had the whole thing set up and waitresses would always think it was neat what we were doing they'd want to be on camera and be cutesy with us and stuff it was just <laughs> a ton of fun so I, that well yeah but my dream really is one day just I I personally the network could have plenty of shows I don't care but I just want to be doing one show one day mm-hmm. just one show and I only think about one show I only plan for one show and all the time I spend on everything else all goes into one show that'd be amazing that would be so you're gonna you're gonna crank that out uh, next month right you're gonna you're gonna have that taken yeah. care of yeah 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 no problem <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Okay, well, again, Chris, thanks for coming on. It was great to have you. For anyone who doesn't know who Chris Fisher is and what what Jupiter Broadcasting is, I don't know where you've been living and what rock you've been under, but uh, you definitely need to come out from (laughs) under it um, and and check out all the stuff that Chris has done over the years. Uh, He's got a lot of great content. Definitely check him out. I consider him a friend. You should, too. Um, If you have any thoughts, comments, questions, as always, email into the show. Let us know what you think. Um, And until next time. Be excellent to each other. 